All right, folks, by popular demand from one, the demands of one person, one reviewer, feline cat, yep, you, whoever you are, I really don't think you were actually asking me to read an L. Ron Hubbard story, but be careful what you wish for. You're getting it. As it turns out, there is a single L. Ron Hubbard science fiction story in the Gutenberg Project. So that's the one we're going to read, folks. Apparently, I mean, I hope I don't get litigated, but uh, it says extensive research was done and found that the copyright was not renewed. So there you have it. Uh, This was... This story that we're going to read by Mr. Hubbard is called The Strain, and it appeared in an astounding science fiction magazine, which cost 25 cents. And on the cover of this magazine, it looks like there's a forest and there is a spaceship and some dude and maybe some sort of a dome encampment. But I don't know that that is going to have anything to do with our story today. That's just the picture on the cover. I have my tasty drink, which I'm going to sip right now. Ah, delicious. And we are going to begin. The Strain, written in 1942. What was going on in 1942, folks? April 1942. I know there was a war going on, and that's about it. Um... All right, here we go. It was unreasonable, he told himself, to feel no agony of apprehension. He was in the vortex of a time whirlwind, and here all stood precariously upon the edge of disaster, but stood quietly, waiting and unbreathing. No man who had survived a crash, survived bullets, survived the paralyzing rays of the guards, had a right to be calm. And it was not like him to be calm. His slender hands and even delicate features were those of an aristocrat, those of a sensitive thoroughbred whose nerves coursed on the surface, whose health depended on the quietness of those nerves. They threw him into the domed room, and his space boots rang upon the metal floor and the glare of savage lights bit into his skull, scarcely less than the impact from the eyes of the enemy intelligence officer. You know, I gotta say, this is actually pretty good. So far, uh, he has a way with words, and um, I wonder if that picture I described on the cover is actually about this story. There is a domed room. So it looks like our main character is being interrogated, maybe. He got caught in his being interrogated. We continue. The identification papers were pushed across the desk by this guard, and the intelligence officer scanned them. Hmm. The brutish, Saturnian countenance lighted uh, lighted and became interested. The slitted eyes flicked with satisfaction from one to the other of the two captured officers. Captain Forrester de Wolfe said the man behind the desk. Which one of you? He looked steadily at the Saturnian and was a little amazed to find himself still calm. 
I am he. Ah, then you are the fight officer Morrison. I'm sorry, flight officer. <laughs> okay, so we got two people being interrogated. One's a flight officer. One is a Saturnian, I guess. Uh, the captain's companion was sweating with his voice and a tremor in it. His youthful, not-too-bright face twitched. You got no right to do anything to us. We are prisoners of war captured in uniform in line of combat duty. We treat Saturnians well enough when we grab them. This speech, or perhaps its undertone of panic, was of great satisfaction to the intelligence officer. He stood up with irony in his bearing and shook the captain and shook Captain De Wolf by the hand. Then, less politely but with more interest, bowed slightly to Officer Mor- to Flight Officer Morrison. The intelligence officer sat down. Ah, yes, he said, looking at the papers. Fortunes of war. You came down into range of the batteries and, well, you came down. You gentlemen don't accuse the Saturnians of a lack in knowing the rules of war, I trust. But there was false candor there. We will give you every courtesy as captured officers. Your pay until the end of the war, suitable quarters, servants, good food, access to entertainment, and a right to look after your less fortunate enlisted captives. There was no end to the statement. It hung there, waiting for an additional qualification. And then the intelligence officer looked at them quickly, falsely, and said, Of course, that is contingent upon your willingness to give us certain information. Oh, okay. Still don't know what planet they're on, though. I mean, not sure. Maybe they didn't say it yet. Uh, okay. Flight Officer Morrison licked overly. <laughs> Flight Officer Morris. Flight Officer Morrison licked overly dry lips. He was young. He had heard many stories about the treatment, even the torture the Saturnians gave their prisoners. And he knew that as a staff officer, the Saturnians would know his inadvertent possession of the battle plan, so all important to this campaign. Morrison flicked a scared glance at his captain and then tried to assume a blustering attitude. Okay, so they're on Saturn, I think, and they're they're captive by the Saturnians? But I thought one of the flight guys was Saturnian. Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe the guy interrogating is a Saturnian. Captain DeWolf spoke calmly, a little surprised at himself that he could be so calm in the knowledge that as aide to the General Ballantine, he, f- he knew far more than was good to know. I am afraid, said the captain quietly, that we know nothing of any use to you. The intelligence officer smiled and read the papers again. On the contrary, my dear captain, I think you know a great deal. It was not clever of you to wear that staff. Uh, I don't know this word. Aguilet on a reconnaissance patrol. So I don't know. I guess it's like some badge or something. I don't know. It was not clever of you to suppose that merely because we had never succeeded in forcing down a G434 such as yours, that it could not be done. And it is not at all clever of you to suppose that we have no knowledge of a pending attack, a very broad attack. We have that knowledge. We must know more. 
His smile was ingratiating. And you, naturally, will tell us. You go to hell, said Flight Officer Morrison, hysteria lurking behind his eyes. Now, now, do not be so hasty, gentlemen, said the intelligence officer. Sit down and smoke a cigarette with me and settle this thing. Uh, I don't know what you call those lines, but there is a line delineating that maybe this is another chapter, but it's a short story, so there's not chapters. Let's see. One second. Okay. Neither officer made a move toward the indicated chairs. Though Morrison's mind coursed the crude atrocity stories which had been circulated among the troops of Earth, stories which concerned Earth soldiers lashed to anthills and honey injected into their wounds, stories which dealt with a courier skinned alive, square inch by square inch, stories about a man staked out, eyelids cut away, to be let go mad in the blaze of Mercurian noon. Captain DeWolf was detached in a dull and disinterested way, standing back some feet from himself and watching the clever young staff captain emotionlessly regard the sly Saturnian. Weird. So do the Saturnians have access to Mercury as well? I don't know why they would... Uh, take their captives to Mercury, cut their eyelids out, and let them walk around until they go crazy. But anyway, apparently they do. So I guess it's Earth against the rest of the solar system. Uh, Okay. The intelligence officer looked from one to the other. He was a good intelligence officer. He knew faces, could feel emotions telepathically, and he knew exactly what information he must get. The flight officer could be broken. It might take several hours and several persuasive instruments, but he could be broken. The staff captain could not be broken. But because he was an intelligent, sensitive man, he could be driven to the brinks of madness. His mind could be warped and the information could thus be extracted. It was too bad to have to resort to these expedients. It was not exactly a gentlemanly way of conducting war, but... There were necessities which knew no rules, and there was a Saturnian general staff which did not now believe in anything resembling humanity. Gentlemen, said the intelligence officer, looking at his cigarette and then at his long, sharp nails. Wow, my recording just stopped. That has never happened to me the entire time I've been doing this podcast. It's There was like a... Uh, system overload crazy anyway that's worrisome but on we go uh we were at sharp nails let me just read this sentence again gentlemen said the intelligence officer looking at his cigarette and then at his long sharp nails we have no wish to break your bodies wreck your minds and discard you that is useless you are already beaten the extraction of information is with us a science I do not threaten, but unless we learn that we wish what we wish to learn, we must proceed. Now, why don't you tell me all about it here and now and save us this uncomfortable and regrettable necessity? He knew men. He knew Earth men. He knew the temper of an officer of the United States of Earth, and he did not expect them to do anything but what they did, stiffen up, become hostile and angry. 
but this was the first step. This was the implanting of the seed of concern. He knew just how far he could go. He smiled at them. Whoa, Hubbard, you are devious. Man, was he tortured, I wonder? <laughs> like, was he a POW? You, he continued, are young. Women doubtless love you. Your lives lay far ahead of you. It is not so bad to be an honored prisoner, truly. Why court the possibility of broken bodies, broken minds, warped and twisted spirits? There's nothing worth that. Your loyalty lies to yourselves, primarily. A state does not own a man. Now, what have you to say? Flight Officer Morrison glanced at his captain. He looked back at the intelligence officer. Go to hell, he said. Next part. Ooh, you guys, there's a picture. I'll just describe the picture right now. It's a drawing of two naked men in a... It's a dome. Well, it's not a dome. It's like an oval. What's like a spherical oval called? An ovoid? I don't know. Um, it's like this spherical oval prison, and there's just a drain at the bottom. I guess that's where they pee and poop. Oh, and there's a caption. It says... The walls were icy, the air was baking hot, and Sahara dry and foul. They waited, waited for Saturn's inquisitioners. Okay, but let's continue with the story. There were no blankets or bunks in the cell, and there was no light save when the guard came. And then there was a blinding torrent of it. The walls sloped toward the center, and there was no flat floor, but a rounded continuation of the walls. The entire place was built of especially heat-conductive metal, and the two prisoners had been stripped of all their clothes. I guess I could have just read the story and not described it. Uh, Captain De Wolf sat in the freezing ink and tried to, tried to keep as much of himself as possible from contacting the metal. For some hours, a water drop had been falling somewhere on something tinny, and it did not fall with regularity. Sometimes there were three splashes in rapid succession, and then none for ten seconds, twenty seconds, or even a minute. The body would build itself up to the next drop, would relax only when it had fallen, would build up for the expected interval, and then wait, 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 and finally slack down in the thought that it would become, that it would come no longer. I, that is a weird sentence. I'm sorry I messed that up, but really he's just dry, describing water dropping. <laughs> Suddenly the drop would fall, a very small sound to react so shatteringly upon the nerves. It's driving them crazy, apparently. The captain was trying to keep his thoughts in a logical regulation pattern, despite the weariness which assailed him, despite the shock of chill which racked him every time he forgot and relaxed against the metal. How hot this foul air. How cold was this wall? Then we have another section. I'm just going to stop mentioning the sections. I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> Forrester, groped Morrison's voice. Hello? Startling himself with the loudness of his tone. Do, is it possible they'll keep us here forever? I don't think so, said the captain. After all, our information won't be any good in any length of time. 
if you are hoping for action, I think you'll get it. Is, is this good sense to hold out? Oh, he's breaking you guys. Let me take a drink. Listen to me, said Captain. You've been in the service long enough to know that if one man fails, he is liable to take the regiment along with him. If we fail, we'll take at the entire army. Remember that. We can't let General Ballantine down. We can't let our brother officers down. We can't let the troops down. And we can't let ourselves down. Make up your mind to keep your mouth shut and you'll feel better. It sounded, thought the captain, horribly melodramatic. But he continued, You haven't had the grind of West Point. A company, a regiment, or an army has no thought of the individual. It cannot have any thought, and the individual, therefore, cannot fail, being a vital part of the larger body. If either of us break now, it would be like a man's heart stopping. We're unlucky enough to be that heart at the moment. I've heard, said Morrison, in a gruesome attempt at jocularity, that getting gutted is comfortable compared to some of the things these Saturnians can think up. The captain wished he could believe fully the trite remark he must offer here. Anything they can do to us won't be half of what we'd feel in ourselves if we did talk. Sure, agreed Morrison. Sure, I see that. But he had agreed too swiftly. Uh-oh, uh-oh, Morrison's gonna talk. The shock of the light was physical, and even the captain cowered away from it and threw a hand across his eye. There was a clatter and a slither, and a tray lay in the middle of the cell, having some having come from an unseen hand at the bottom of the door. Morrison, oh, so I guess that's not where they pee. I guess that's where the food comes from. Morrison squinted at it with a glad grin. There were several little dishes sitting around a big metal cover of the type used to keep food warm. Morrison snatched at the cover and whipped it off, and then, cover still raised, he stared. On the platter, a cat was lying, agony and appeal in its eyes, crucified to a wooden slab with forks through its paws, cockroaches crawling and eating at its skinned side. What the hell did I get into? Do I want to keep reading this? I don't know. I like cats. I have a cat right next to me right now, and I don't want to hear about cats being crucified, but we got to continue. The cover dropped with a clatter and then and was then snatched up. The heavy edge of it came down on the skull of the cat, and with a sound between a sigh and a scream, it relaxed, dead. Oh my god. Ugh. Grizzly, you guys, grizzly. Gray-faced Morrison put the cover back on the dish. The captain looked at the flight officer and tried to keep his attention upon Morrison's reaction and thus avoid the illness which fraught upward within him. The light went out and they could feel each other staring into the dark, could feel each other's thoughts. From the captain came the compulsion to silence. From Morrison, a struggling but unspoken panic. One sentence ran through, the, through Captain DeWolf's mind over and over. Is he going to break at the first chance he has? He is going to break at the first chance he has. He is going to break at the first chance he has. 
He is angrily, he broke the chain. How could he tell this man what it would mean? Himself a point officer, it was hard for him to reach out and understand the reaction of one who had been until recently a civilian pilot. How could he harden in an hour or a day the resolution to loyalty? It was a it was a step ahead, a tribute to DeWolf's understanding that he realized the difference between them. He knew how carefully belief and service had been built within himself, and he knew how vital that belief was. But how could he make Morrison know that 50,000 Earthmen, his friends, the hope of Earth, might die if the time and plan of the attack were disclosed? Futilely, he wished that they had not been at the council which had decided it. That knowledge of it had been necessary for them to do a complete scout of the situation for General Ballantine. If no word of this came to the Saturnians, then this planet might be wholly cleared of the enemy with one lightning blow by space and land. Uh, I mean, when did we understand that Saturn was a gas giant is my question? Because clearly these people aren't living on the surface of Saturn. I don't know. I feel like we would have known that in 1942. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. Anyway, uh, suddenly DeWolf discovered that he had been wondering for a long time about his daughter, who had been reported by his wife as having a case of measles. Angrily, he yanked his mind from such a fatal course. He could not allow himself to be human, to know that people would sorrow, would sorrow if he went. He was part of an army, and as part of that army, he had no right to personality or self. He was here. He could not fail. He could not let Morrison fail. If only that drop would stop falling. (laughs) It was both relief and agony when the light went on once more. The captain had no conception of the amount of time which had passed, was only conscious of the misery of of his body and the determination not to fail. The door swung open, and a dark, hooded Saturnian, infantryman, stood there. An officer beyond him beckoned and said, We want a word with Morrison, the flight officer, if you please. Oof, okay. Not until Morrison had gone and had been gone an hour or more did Captain DeWolf begin to crumble within. The irregular, loud drop, the continued shocks of a body sweating in the hot air and then touching the icy metal, the fact that Morrison, the man was not a regular. He was a civilian less than a, less than a year in service. Unlike Captain DeWolf, he was not a personally molded, he was not a personality molded into a military machine, and a civilian having earned a personality of his own through the necessity to seek for self could not be drawn too far down the road of agony without breaking. Captain DeWolf, sick with physical and nervous discomfort, was ground down further by his fear that Morrison would crack. And as time went by and Morrison was not returned, DeWolf became convinced. Surging up at last, a battered, he battered at the door. Okay, hold on. My dog wants out really bad. Pause. And we're back. 
Surging up at last, he battered at the door. No answer came to him. The lock was steadfast. Wildly, he turned and beat at all the plates of the cell. And not until pain reached his consciousness from his bloodied fists did he realize the danger in which he stood. He himself was cracking. He stilled the will to scream at the dropping water. He carefully took himself in hand and felt the light die in his eyes. He had no hope of escape. The Saturnians would be too clever for that. But he could no longer trust himself to wait. And he used his time by examining the whole of this cell. Oh man, is he going to try and kill himself? The walls were huge, unyielding plates, and there was no window. But passing back and forth, he repeatedly felt the roughness of a grate under his foot. This he finally investigated, a gesture more than a hope. For this served as the room's only plumbing and was foul and odorous and could lead nowhere save into a sewage pipe. Okay, so I was right, but it sounded like they were passing through to it. I don't know. Maybe there's another door. For the space of several loud and shattered drops, the wolf stood crouched, loose grate in hand, filled with disbelief. He opened it? For there was a faint ray of light reflected from somewhere below, and in that light, it could be seen that there was room enough to pass through. Uh, loose crate in hand. I don't know if that means he opened it. Anyway, suddenly, crafty, he listened at the door. Then, with quick, sure motions, slid into the foul hole and pulled the grate into place over his head. Oh boy, here we go. Shawshank Redemption right here. The light, not yet seen, was beckoning to him at the end of a tunnel in which he could just crouch. He crawled in the muck for 200 feet before he came to the light. And there he stopped, staring upward. The hope in him flickered waned and nearly vanished in a tidal wave of despair for the light came from an upper grate 14 feet above the floor of the tunnel far out of reach upon a slimy unflawed wall he tried to leap for it and fell back slipping and cruelly banging his head as he dropped again he took solid hold of himself he forced his trained mind to think forced his trained body to obey he stood a long way back from himself and critically observed his actions and impulses as though he was something besides a man and the man was on parade. He looked farther along the tunnel and fumbled his way away from the light. He was sure he would have another outlet presented to him by fate. He could not be led this far without some recompense. Dude, I think they're leading him on. Like, they want him to feel like maybe there's some hope, but then they're going to just strip it away from him. And he felt in the top of the tunnel for a grate, which might lead out through an empty cell. The tunnel curved, and then a new sound made him fumble before he took another step. There was a drop there, an emptiness, which might extend 10 feet, which might extend 10 feet or 100 feet. He had to return or chance it. He's going to chance it. The water which sluggishly gurgled about his anchors spilled over the soft lip of the hole and dropped soundlessly. Suddenly, he was filled with sickness and panic and premonition. This foul trap into which he had ventured hemmed him closed, imprisoned him, would embrace him for some awesome purpose and never give him up. 
He forced himself into line. He froze his terror. He dropped blindly over the lip of the hole. He was not shaken, for he had dropped less than six feet and the bottom was soft. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) He crouched, his emotions clashing, disgust and relief. And then when he looked about him again, he felt the mad surge of hope, for there was light ahead. All right, let's see where it leads. Floundering and splashing and steadying himself against the walls, he gained the bend and saw the blinding light and saw the blinding force of daylight. Oh my goodness. For some little while, he could not look directly at it, nor could his wits embrace the whole of the promise that light offered. But at last, when his pupils were contracted to normal and his realization distilled into reason, he went forward and looked down. Once more, his hope died. Here was a sheer drop of nearly a hundred feet, a cliff face which offered no slightest hold, greased by the sewage and worn smooth by the water. Clinging forlornly to the edge, he scanned the great dome of the military base a mile overhead. He scanned the cluster of metal huts on the plain before him, watched far-off dots, which were soldiers. There was a roar overhead, and he drew back lest he be seen by the small scout plane which cruised beneath the dome. Then its sound faded. Uh, When its sound had faded, he again ventured a glance out, looking up to make sure he was not seen from above. And once more, hope flared. Ooh, what do you see up above? For the wall above this opening offered grips in the form of projecting stones, and the climb was less than 20 feet. It was difficult to swing out of the opening and grab the first rock. It took courage to expose himself to the sentries who, though 2,000 yards away, could pick him easily off the wall if they noticed him. The rock he grabbed came loose in his hand and he nearly hurtled down the cliff. He crouched, panting, denied, wearied beyond endurance with the sudden shock of it. And then he stood off from himself again and snarled a command to go up, to go on up. The next rock he trusted held, and in a moment he was glued to the face of the sheer wall, making weary muscles respond to orders. Why he was tried, he did not understand. Why he was tired, he did not understand, for he had done no great amount of physical exertion. But rock by rock, as he went up, his energy flooded from him and left him in a hazed realm of semi-consciousness, which threatened uncaring surrender. He rested for longer and longer intervals between lifts, and what had been 20 feet seemed to stretch to a tortured infinity. He could not believe that he had come within two feet of the top, but staring up, he saw that he should believe it. A savage will took hold of him, and he reached out for the next handhold. It did not exist. He fumbled and groped across the smooth face above him. He stretched to reach the lip so near him and then realized that, near as he was, he could go no farther. Already his bleeding hands refused to hold beyond the next few seconds. A foot slipped, and in sweating terror, he wildly clawed for his hold. His right hand slipped loose. A red haze of strain covered his vision. One foot came free, and the tendons of his right arm were stretched to the snapping point. 
He knew he was going, knew that he would fall, knew that Morrison would sell an army to the gods of slaughter. His right hand numbed and lost its grip, and he started to fall. There was a wrench which tore muscles and nerves, and something was around his wrist. He was not falling. He was dangling over emptiness, and something had him from above. They pulled him up over the ledge and dropped him in an exhausted, broken huddle upon the gravel of the small plateau. And at last, when he opened his eyes, it was to see the grinning face of the intelligence officer and the stolid guards. Ah, they got him, you guys. They got him. Usually, said the intelligence officer in an offhand voice, they make it up and over by tearing a grip out of the cliff with their fingernails. You, however, are of a much more delicate nervous structure, it seems. I rather thought you'd fail when you did. One gets to know these things after some practice. Captain DeWolf lay where they dropped him. A dull haze of beaten anger clouded his sight and then dropped away from him and left him naked, filthy and alone among his country's enemies. Diffidently, the guards picked him up and lugged him toward the small buildings. They took him down a corridor and into a large, strange room. Glad to be quit of this, they put him in a chair and strapped his wrists down. Captain DeWolf made no resistance. He did not look up. The intelligence officer walked gracefully back and forth, slowly touring the room. He stopped and lighted a cigarette. It was really quite useless, that escape of yours, he said. Your friend Morrison talked to the limit of his knowledge. He gave us troops, divisions to be used, state of equipment, general battle plan, in fact, everything but two small facts, which he did not know. He came nearer, he came nearer to DeWolf. He was not able to recall the time of the attack or the assembly point after it had succeeded, if it did succeed. You are to give us that data, for as a staff officer, of course, you know now. Brawls, make ready with number four. Uh, I don't know what brawls are, and I don't know what number four is, but we'll probably find out. Captain DeWolf tried to rally. He tried to feel rage against Morrison. He tried to realize that an army would perish because of this day's work. He could not think, could not feel. They were rolling some kind of machine toward him, and the wiggly thing called brawls was adjusting something on it. I won't tell you anything, said DeWolf, leadenly. A dog was pulled out of the cage and placed on a table where it was strapped down. Dude, this guy is sick and twisted. First a cat, now a dog? Okay. It whimpered and tried to lick at the hand of the soldier who did the work. Brawls, face hidden in a hood, worked expertly with a little track. On this was a small car having two high sides and neither back nor front. It ran on a little track 
which had been widened to accommodate the width of the dog. Brawls touched a button, and from jets on either side of the car, small streams shot forth with sudden ferocity. These jets sprayed water under tremendous hydraulic pressure, jets which would cut wood faster than any saw and which hissed hungrily as they began to roll toward the dog. Wait, are we torturing the dog or the human? Captain DeWolf tried to drop his eyes. He could not. The little car crept up on the dog, and then the jets began to carve away a fraction of an inch at a time. DeWolf managed to look away. The shrieks of agony which came from the dog carved through DeWolf. I won't tell you anything, he said. Oh my God, you guys, this is heavy. I'm glad my dog left so he didn't have to hear this. They stretched out his arm and fixed the track on either side of it. They started the car toward his outstretched hand. Fixedly, he watched it coming. To the persuasive drawl of the intelligence officer, he said, I won't tell you anything. A few hours later, the intelligence officer was making out his report. Oh boy. He stopped after he had written the caption and the date and gazed at his long, sharp fingernails stained with nicotine. Then he signed and resumed his writing. Intelligence report. Base 34D, Mercury. Adsama, 452. Today interrogated two officers captured from Earth Reconnaissance Plane, Captain Forrester DeWolf and Flight Officer Morrison. Captain DeWolf, under Procedure 23, Escape Tactic, revealed nothing. Later, he was given Procedures 45, 97, 21, and 6. He died without talking. Flight Officer Morrison was taken from the cell to the chamber. He was very combative. Procedures 45, 97, and 6 were employed. Despite state of subject, he was able to get at the automatic of a guard in a moment of carelessness and succeeded in retaining it even after he was shot. Rather than risk the divulgence of data, Flight Officer Morrison blew out his brains. The guard is under arrest. From this attempt and the stubbornness of the enemy, I conclude that there may be some attack in the making, but... As our own scouts have discovered nothing, I do not expect it in this quarter for some time. Drau Shadma, Captain Saturnian Imperials, Intelligence. And here we have the last paragraph. At headquarters of the Third Space Army, United States of Earth, General Ballantine sat massively at his, de- at his field desk, impatiently going through a sheaf of reports. Belts, he brayed at an aide, tell Colonel Straw that whether he thinks regulation hold-down belts are useless or not, his troops will wear them and parade with them. Yes, sir, said the aide timidly. He had a report in his hands and was not very anxious to give it. Well, said General Ballantine sharply, what have you there? It's a report, sir. 
Captain DeWolf and Flight Officer Morrison are missing on reconnaissance. They are unreported for a day and a half. Morrison? DeWolf? Oh yes, DeWolf. General Ballantine was perfectly silent for a moment. Then, in an altered tone, Morrison. Morrison. I don't know the man. I don't know. He was silent again, so that his abrupt return to activity was the more startling. Post an order for a council of officers, and have another aide appointed to me. Damn it, that was a neat plan of attack, too. You're changing the plan, sir? General Ballantine snorted. (laughs) They'll wear those hold-down safety belts. I'll change that plan of attack. I don't know, can't know, what the Saturnians found out. I don't think the wolf, but it makes no difference. I'd have to know, and that's impossible. There's time to change. Post that notice. And there you have it. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm actually kind of shocked. I mean, no. Do I like the fact that a cat was tortured and a dog was tortured or, you know, tortured for demonstration purposes? No, but I'm actually pretty impressed. This was kind of a gripping story. Um, especially toward, I mean, I, I thought like, especially, I I guessed it, you know, I guessed that they, that they were letting him try to escape and that it was like, you know, they even had a number for that tactic. (laughs) Um, but I, I felt that it was like a gripping experience, like very well described of a man and, like dire straits running for his life, you know? Uh, Wow, I really want to, I mean, look, obviously he didn't have to be tortured to be able to write like this, but he's a good writer, gotta say. Kind of sick? Yeah. But a pretty good story, actually. I don't know what you guys thought of it, but I'm I'm pretty impressed. Um, At the used bookstore in my town, there is like a pretty big section of L. Ron Hubbard books. <laughs> and I've been tempted to read one. Um, whenever I look up online, like what's the best L. Ron Hubbard book though, it's always Battlefield Earth. And that is like a huge book. And I don't want to dedicate that. I don't want to, you know, dedicate th- that amount of time towards something that I'm not sure I'm going to like. But I think he just proved to me right here that he can write a good story. Um, also, you know, Battlefield Earth, I've seen the movie and, you know, as everyone says, it is literally one of the worst movies ever created, but I don't think that was his fault. Anyway, uh, that was fun for my first experience of L. Ron Hubbard. I would say, you know, maybe I'll read another one, but I don't think I will because I don't think any more in the public domain. So there you go. Uh, Strain. Not The Strain, as most stories are called from the 40s and 50s. It's called Strain. Pretty good. Did I read the little, uh, I don't know what you call the the byline or something after the title, but it's the essence of military success is teamwork. The essence of that is absolute reliability of every man 
every unit of the team under any strain that may be imposed. And the duty of a good general, then it has a dash. See, okay, so that's interesting. Because, you know, we spend the whole story learning that this officer is, you know, he's been hardened in his training to like, you fight as a team. If you give up, that this could be the end of the whole army. And he's he's a good soldier, right? And the general at the end, you know, I'm sure Hubbard meant to write it this way. It was very, uh, um, what's the word? Not lackadaisical, um, nonchalant <laughs> about about the whole situation. Like he could barely remember this guy, but I think he remembered that he knew and he just couldn't be certain that he didn't crack. So he's like, ah, we got time to change it. No big deal. So what is the duty of a good general? That is what L. Ron Hubbard wants us to consider. I don't know the answer to that. Anyway, pretty good story. Hope you guys enjoyed it.